We are this morning uh, picking up where we left off, continuing our look at the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there, Hebrews chapter 3. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1277. As you may remember from our, our study of the first couple of chapters, uh, those, those first section of Hebrews, the author introduces Jesus the Christ in his deity and then in his humanity. And then, of course, sandwiching a warning between those two, uh, a warning to his hearers not to drift away from what they had been taught. But then at the end of the second chapter that we looked at last week, Uh, The author introduces the idea of Jesus as the great high priest, the human who is sent to represent people to God, before God. And that's a huge idea. It's a massive idea and one particularly uh, significant for that original audience. Uh, And so over the next eight or so chapters, we're going to see the author develop this theme, this idea of Jesus the Christ as the great high priest um, and so we'll, we'll see that theme develop significantly. Um, and, and also in different ways that it relates to his readers and to us as well. Um, for our passage this morning, I'll be honest, I struggled a little bit with where to break this up. We're really looking at a section where you've got the initial ideas and then explanation of them until about the middle of chapter 4. But we didn't have time to do a full chapter and a half this morning. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at that over the next several weeks and we'll address this first section that deals really with the ideas that he's going to explain over that full chapter and a half or so. So with that, um, of course, we need the Spirit to speak to us through his word. If you're able, please stand while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Hebrews 3. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the word that you have given us that is your truth. We thank you that you have superintended it, that you have carried it through the ages so that it is faithfully your word without problems, without additions or subtractions, anything that's changed with no changes and no errors throughout the millennia, that you have carried it through. And so, Lord, we pray that as we turn to your word, to your truth, that you would give us your spirit, that we would read it faithfully, that we would see your truth and submit to it, that you would encourage us by this, your word. Make your name great, not mine, not this church's, make your name great through the reading and the preaching of this, your word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 3. This is God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated.
When I was in high school, I was a runner, not competitively, but every afternoon just as a way to burn off some pent-up energy. I'd go out and run for 45 minutes to an hour, give or take. Um, and, you know, as I say, it, it wasn't intended to be fast or ec- particularly anything more than just a little bit of exercise. But along the way, I discovered something. The days that I forgot to bring my little radio, of course, this was long before iPods, and so I had to get my, my little re- radio receiver that was about this big and my big, fat, poofy headphones, whatever. Uh, and the days that I forgot to bring that radio with me were dramatically more difficult than the days that I did remember. The first couple of blocks would be fine, be okay, and then it would start getting harder and it would start being more and more. All I could think of was, I, I can't breathe. My legs hurt. My feet hurt. My back hurts. This is hard. I can't breathe. And oh, by the way, I can't breathe. This hill is really steep. Maybe I'll just, I'll just walk for a little while. And then, of course, that would turn into a longish walk rather than a run. And, you know, on, the, on one hand, exercising, walking, and running, both very valuable things. You know, it's not like one is necessarily more holy than the other. Uh, but it was amazing to me how much more difficult it was to do that whole run when my mind was focused entirely on the momentary discomfort. When I had something else to keep my mind occupied and prevent me from getting stuck on, ow, ow, this hurts, I can't breathe, then it was much easier to continue on, to endure to the end of the run. And I used this same technique when I was hiking in the Rockies with the Boy Scouts. You know, coming from South Carolina, the Rocky Mountains are just a tad higher in elevation, which means there's a little bit less air to breathe. And so those first couple of days were rough as we were trying to get acclimated. In the morning, when we were all exhausted and tired and didn't want to get up, it, it was really hard to get started until we got a conversation going. And we're talking about something, anything other than, I can't breathe. Where's all the oxygen go? Once we got to talking, it got a lot easier to continue and endure through the whole day. As we've said before, the audience for this letter is uh, believers from a Jewish background who were at the time undergoing persecution, persecution that looked like it was going to get a lot worse. And of course, historically speaking, we know that it did get a lot worse before it got better. At the same time, seemed like Jesus was taking an awfully long time to come back and fix the things that he said he was going to come back and fix. He had said, I will be coming back soon, and here we are decades later, and he's still not back. What do we do with that? It was a hard time. So in offering comfort, where does the author here begin? He starts with Jesus himself. He spent two chapters describing, of course, this was before the chapter numbering got put in, but you know what I mean. He spent two chapters describing Jesus again, reminding them of what they had heard before, that Jesus was both God and man, both. And he begins to explain Jesus' relationship to his people, but he reminds them here to consider Jesus, that is, to focus on him And not on the persecution that your family or the culture or the world or whatever is laying on you. Don't focus on the likelihood that this is going to get worse before it gets better. Don't let yourself fall into the trap of thinking, oh, it was so much better back when. Some imagined golden age. 
If you do that, you will likely decide that this running thing is not all it's cracked up to be, and I'd really rather just go sit on the couch and watch TV. Or, in this case, go, re- go back and return to worshiping according to the stipulations of the law of God that he gave through Moses. Instead, consider, that is, focus your complete attention on Jesus. Focus on who He is. Focus on what He accomplished and how much greater what He accomplished and who He is is than any of the possible alternatives. If you focus on the hardships, if you focus on your estrangement from your family, on the seizure of your property or the possible seizure of your property, on the risk of physical pain and even death, if you focus on those things, if you let your mind dwell on that, you will be overcome by it. Instead, focus on Jesus as these trials approach. There's a lot tucked into this fairly short passage. At its most basic level, Jesus is being compared to Moses, right? Uh, Not with the intention of denigrating or making Moses less, but of glorifying Jesus, of showing how Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was and is still revered in Jewish culture because he was the instrument that God used to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and then to lead them for a generation in the wilderness. He led them to the very edge of the land that had been promised to Abraham. There is a sense in which Moses was both prophet and priest and king, all. He was a prophet in that God sent him to speak to the people on God's behalf. That's the job of a prophet, to speak God's word to God's people, to represent God to the people, delivering to them the warnings and the law from God. Moses was a priest in that he pled for God's mercy on behalf of the people when they ignored the warnings and violated the law that God had sent them and worshipped other gods. And Moses was a king in the sense that he was God's chosen ruler over God's people. Now, of course, he had help and advice and uh, elders that he appointed and on and on. But he was the one that God appointed to lead. By joining all those offices into a single person, prophet, priest, and king, God used Moses' life to point forward to the one who would perfectly and eternally unite those offices the Messiah. People revered Moses as a signpost, as a map pointing toward the Messiah, toward the Christ. But here's the thing. When you get to your destination, do you keep looking at the map or do you lay it aside and look at the destination you were aimed at? Of course, you set the map aside. It's not that the map is valueless, but that the destination that it brought you to is of infinitely greater value than the map was. And the metaphor that the author here uses here is one of a house. One designs it and provides all the materials. Uh, another assembles those materials. Of course, the one who does the assembly is worthy of honor, but the one who designed it, the one who formed the materials perfectly and brought them all together, who wrote out precise directions, that one is worthy of much greater honor. And in case you missed the connection, the author here says that we are the house. We are God's house. We are the house that God designed and built. There's more here 
uh, when we look at this, there's more going on than, than that Jesus put together just, uh, in just a, a house in the sense of a building. Uh, in, in Hebrew, in Greek, in English, there's this kind of connotation, dual meanings of a house can be the building or it can mean the family that lives in the building. Think of, I don't know, the fall of the house of Usher or the house of David, something like that. And it's a familiar uh, way of thinking about things. Uh, in the passages that speak in the Old Testament of God creating a house for himself, there is a strong sense that he is not simply talking about a building, but a family. Even in the Old Testament where he is on the surface talking about the temple, an actual building for him, God's house. Even there, there's a strong sense, a strong undertone that he's building a family for himself primarily. We have been made brothers, siblings of the eldest son, Jesus. We are those who share in a heavenly calling. Now, throughout chapter 2, the author relates how Jesus has been made like us. You'll remember that. Uh, who ha- he has uh, specifically that he shares our flesh and blood, that he shared our trials and our struggles, that all the things that make up this human experience, except sin, he chose to share. There's more going on here than just that Jesus took up humanity, as as miraculous as that is, more than just he chose to share our struggles. We also receive from him, share with him in a heavenly calling, share in His holiness. Irenaeus, who you may have heard of, he was a pastor and a church leader in about 150 to 200 AD. Uh, He put it this way, he said, the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, did through His transcendent love become what we are, that He might bring us to be even what He is Himself. Because of the incarnation and our union with Christ, we share in Christ's holiness. This is one of the ideas that the author stresses throughout the book. The co-sharing with Christ by those who are in Him. He shared our struggles and our flesh and our blood, voluntarily taking on Himself all of the pains and the miseries of this life, even unto death. And we receive from Him. We share in His holiness his blessedness, his, the delight that he receives from the Father. We share in that through our union with him. Because we do, we have fellowship with him and with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. That has, you know, fellowship has become one of those kind of Christian, uh, Christianese, watchwords, whatever, uh, that, that often don't end up having a ton of meaning. Uh, we, but here's the thing. We serve communion as we did last week. We serve communion the first Sunday of every month. In a real sense, when we have communion, we sit down together at a meal with God. With the God of the universe, we sit down and have dinner. And it won't be like, you know, imagine the Queen of England invites you for uh, tea, high tea at the at Buckingham Palace, whatever. If, if that were to happen, you would show up wearing your absolute best clothes, starched within an inch of your life, you would have studied Miss Manners till your eyes bled to make sure you knew exactly which spoon and fork were the right ones to use so you wouldn't embarrass yourself, right? Maybe that's just me. It's not like that with the Lord. 
it will be like when we sit down with our families at dinner every night. Oh, sure, we're polite. We don't throw food at each other. At least I hope you don't. But not because we're afraid of embarrassing ourselves. Not because the Lord is so far distant that we just have to sit and be starched and not move. Because we love our family. We long to do what is pleasing. We talk easily about our days, what happened at work, what happened at school, what our hopes are, what our dreams are. There is an intimacy in that kind of family dinner. The Lord's Supper is us having that intimate family dinner, that table fellowship, if you will, with God Himself and with each other. If you're a Christian, you have been adopted. You have been made a member of God's family permanently and irrevocably, unchangeably part of the intimate family of the Lord of the universe. That's a big concept. What does that look like? When Ivy and George were still babies, part of their evening bedtime routine, whatever, uh, was they'd have a bottle right before we put them in bed, turn the lights out and put them in bed. Uh, And, of course, since it was a bottle, I could take a turn. Uh, Holly and I would trade off. And when it was my turn, I would hold whichever one it was in my lap uh, as, as they drank their bottle. And sometimes, because they were little, they'd get wiggly, not having full control over the limbs, uh, arms waving around, whatever, and they weren't paying attention to where their arms were going. They really didn't know that they were supposed to pay attention to where their arms were going. But sometimes, one of those flailing hands would poke Daddy in the eyeball. Those of you who are parents are familiar with this experience. It's not much fun for Daddy, but no matter how many times Ivy or George poked me in the eyes while trying to grab the bottle or my hat or whatever, they would never stop being my child. No matter what they do, no matter how bad it is, they will never stop being my children. If one of them grows up and, God forbid, commits murder, they will still be my child. No matter what. I will still love them no matter what. I tell them this often. There is nothing you can do to make me not love you. There is nothing that can be done to you that will make me not love you. And for me, of course, as a human being, there's a sense in which that's kind of aspirational, I'm still sinful, I've still got a wicked heart, but it's absolutely 100% true for our faithful Father, for the Lord of the universe. There is nothing that you could do, Christian, to make Him not love you anymore. There is nothing that you could do to make Him love you one iota less than He does right now. There is nothing, Christian, that anyone could do to you that will make God love you less than He does right now. No matter how often you poke him in the eye, you will not stop being his child. You are his child, no matter what. By the same token, though, your calling, if you're a Christian, your calling is not stick your thumb in daddy's eye. We may do it in ignorance, and it will take us time to learn how not to poke him in the eye, right? You know, it takes time to learn things. Babies 
take a while to grow up and start to get control over their limbs, and it's no different for Christians. As we grow in our faithfulness to him, we are learning better and better how not to poke him in the eye. But when we know better, when we learn better, we want to stop hurting him. We want to stop poking him in the eye. We want to stop sinning against him. And so we are called to learn the things of God, to consider, to focus on Jesus. Now understand, throughout the Bible, the in, in fancy grammatical terms here, I apologize, I'm an English major and I'm a nerd, so just, you know, deal with it. The indicative always comes before, precedes the imperative. The indicative always precedes the imperative. What does that mean? The statement of what is true always comes before the command of what to do. The command is always built on the foundation of what is already true about you in Christ, period, without exception. For example, we talked about the Ten Commandments all last summer and into the fall. It is perhaps the most famous what-to-do passage in the entire Bible. It is literally a list of do's and don'ts, right? Everybody is familiar with it, even if you don't know any of the rest of the Bible, you know what the Ten Commandments are. But how does it start? Do you remember how the Ten Commandments, what the preface is? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, Ten Commandments. God doesn't say, here's these rules and if you do them well, then I'll take care of you and I'll bless you. And I'll I'll get you out of slavery once you do these things. He says, I have done this. I have made you mine. I have called you by my name. I've gotten you out of slavery. Here's how you behave now that you're in my family. Here's what the family rules are. What is true always precedes what to do. Every command, this this pattern is repeated throughout Scripture, every command is based on something that is already true, either something that is true about God in His character or in His actions, something that He's already accomplished on our behalf. Every command, every consider Jesus, every do this, whatever it is, is built on what God has already accomplished for you. The commands of God are not the arbitrary demands of capricious whatever. They are our response to the character and the actions of a loving Father. In this case, in our passage this morning, the imperative, consider or set your mind on Jesus, is based on the statement of who the Christian now is in Christ. You are adopted into His family, brothers. And that word is brothers and sisters, really. It's gender neutral, whatever. Uh, You are holy, that is, you are justified in being sanctified, and you share in a heavenly calling. What to do can only stand on the firm foundation of what is true. The Lord acts first, and we respond. So what does it mean to consider Jesus? This seems to be sort of a nebulous concept, right? I mean... You shall not murder. That's real clear, right? I don't need to wonder what that means. What does this mean? In part, he explains it. Verse 6, he says, We must hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. 
or to put the same thing another way, part of setting your mind on Jesus is being firm in our hope no matter what the circumstances are. When God blesses us with good health and with a loving family and with a good job, it can seem very easy to hold our hope. But here's the thing. When things are good, the temptation is to trust in the circumstances rather than the one who gave the circumstances. To trust in the fun of the job, the provision that it provides, you know, the the money that it provides, whatever. To trust in that stuff rather than the Lord who provided it. When our job turns out to be more work rather than play, when we realize that our family, much as we may love them, is in fact made up of sinful people who hurt us, when our health invariably starts to fail, and it will, it gets hard to hold on to hope because we're tempted to blame God for not giving us the comfort and ease that we think we deserve. In both of those times, whether in ease or in difficulty, in trial, we see our faith tested. We see the temptation to lay aside our hope and not hold fast to the Lord. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is when we must choose to hold on fast, hold on tight to what we believe, that God is good, that He is working for us working good in our lives. That our hope is not for health and wealth in this life. In fact, let's just be honest, we kind of expect to be treated as Jesus was, hated and reviled and opposed by those who hate God. If the world hated Him, then it will hate us as well. Our hope is not in ease or comfort. Our hope is that God is in the process of making all things right, of redeeming a broken world that no matter how bad it gets, God is still good. God is still sovereign. That He hasn't been surprised by the circumstances of my life and that He hasn't forgotten about me. No matter that he's not given me the thing that I asked for. He hasn't forgotten me, and he's not surprised by what he has given me. But the only way to hold on tight, the only way to survive when the trial comes is if you've prepared, if you've spent time, probably daily time, familiarizing yourself with the one who is our hope, Jesus. Now, it's going to sound like what I'm describing is a daily quiet time, and I suppose in a sense it is uh, to an extent, but it's not about checking a box. Okay, cool, I've read my Bible for 15 minutes every day, so now I'm holier than other people. Now I've, I'm, getting my, I'm earning my heaven points by reading the Bible. That ain't how it works. We read and we study the Bible so that we can learn the heart and mind of the one who holds every aspect of our lives in his hands. Now, you may see the term meditating on Scripture. Uh, you, you may see that somewhat often, somewhat commonly. And unfortunately, that term has become associated in our minds with Eastern religions, uh, you know, sitting there, um, empty your mind, whatever. That's not at all what's being talked about in, uh, in meditating on Scripture gurus and empty minds and like that. It almost might be better to say 
studying Scripture. That's almost closer to the term meditating originally meant. Uh, but even that has the connotation of maybe a dry and academic life, cut off from real life. So what do we mean? Meditate on, study Scripture. What, what are, what's going on there? We take time out of our day, turn off the computer, turn off the television, set the phone aside, put all of those distractions away where they're not going to draw your mind away from what you're focused on, and focus intently on what God tells us about Himself and about the world that He created and about us. Set all the distractions aside and study His Word to see Him, to see Him in His character, to see the world that He created and what He intended it to be, to see yourself in your createdness and also in your fallenness. It's important to meditate, to reflect deeply on the parts of Scripture that are un- comfortable, as well as on the parts that we love and enjoy. Y'all, it's, it's fun, it's comforting to read Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes! Awesome! I'll read that every day. Let's go. But we also need to read Romans 3, and Romans 9. We need to read James and Philemon and Jude. Not just read the Psalms, but also Genesis and Job and not just the first couple of chapters, that part at the end where it gets challenging, and Obadiah, and Leviticus. Really? Leviticus? Yes, really Leviticus. We need to spend time in those passages humbly asking God what He would have us learn from them about Him, rather than looking for how whatever I'm reading today can establish what I already think. We are called to know our Lord. And that's not just going to happen magically. It requires us being diligent and meditating on Him, considering Him, focusing our minds and our hearts and our lives on Him. We are called to follow Him, and we can know for certain that it will not be an easy road. You find yourself on a wide, comfortable road, wide, comfortable path. You need to ask some hard questions because you might not be on the right road. Even if our culture doesn't fight us, and we can be sure that it will in blatant or subtle ways, our own sin will fight us. Your own sin nature will choose at every chance it gets to reject the Lord and create another God that is much more comfortable in His image, in His place. Just as it is hard to make yourself exercise your body, it is hard to exercise your faith. But it is of far greater importance. No matter what you do, your body will eventually age and lose function. In this life, unless Jesus comes back first, you will age and eventually die. But your faith will last forever. The more time you spend exercising, working out your faith, building it up as you would a muscle, the better that faith will serve you when the hard times come. And they will. Now, it's not a popular message, it's not a fun message, but the reality is this world is hard. It is broken. It is not the way it's supposed to be. Your life is not progressing to ever greater triumphs 
If that's your expectation, you're either lying to yourself and everyone around you, or you're going to eventually get crushed under the weight of reality. There's a song in the late 90s that, for understandable reasons, didn't hit it big, but I liked it. Life is hard. The world is cold. You're barely young and then you're old. Be encouraged. Unfortunately, it's true. Life is hard. The world is cold. You are barely young, and then it seems like just in a second you're old and looking back at your best years behind you. The rest of that song went like this. Every falling tear is always understood by God. Life is hard, but God is good. God is good no matter what our circumstances. God is sovereign even when things seem to be completely and utterly out of control. He is still sovereign. Just because it's out of my control doesn't mean it's out of His control. Just like when I was running, if you focus on the hard, if you focus on the bad, if you focus on the cold and the difficult, the disappointments of daily life, on the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, you will be crushed. What you look for is what you will see. If you go looking for disappointments in ways that things are harming you and breaking you, you'll find them. But if you fix your mind and your heart and your eyes on Jesus, on your hope, on the fact that, yes, this world is not as it was supposed to be, but neither is it as it shall be. Because God is on His throne then you will be able to endure. You will be able to stand, and having done all, to stand firm. Because He is sovereign. And He is good. Because He is faithful. Because He is, we are able to stand firm in our hope. Our hope is not the strength of what we can do inside ourselves. It is the strength of what we have fixed our hope on. And He is faithful and trustworthy. We can stand firm in our hope to hold fast to our confident belief in Him because He will hold you up. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to You. We pray, Lord, that You would strengthen us that you would give us what you know is best for us. And when the trials come, when the difficulties come, that you would cause us to consider, to focus our attention on you. Prepare us now in advance, and when the hard times come, strengthen us. By your grace, by your mercy, give us your spirit and strengthen us that we may be faithful and endure, that we may stand and having done all to stand. Glorify yourself in our lives, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.